So we've done the Moby Dick story already just, what, five episodes ago with uh, Commander Decker chasing down the Doomsday Machine. And then we talked about how we did Moby Dick in First Contact with Picard. But this time around in the episode Obsession, we're talking about Captain Kirk being obsessed with killing his white whale. McCoy even calls it putting in a trophy on his shelf. We're here to talk about that and so much more here. My name's Matt, coming to you from Austin, and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Haley frequencies are open. There we go. We are back here talking about Obsession. We are now in a post-discovery season two world. With that said, we're, uh, we're going to start with some of the behind-the-scenes stuff like we always like to talk about in the original series episodes. I think it leads to understanding why some of the shows are different than others. Also why, uh, uh, you know, what the behind the scenes stuff that really factors into what we see on screen. I think that's the really important part. So moving on, here's what we're going to say. This episode was directed by Art Wallace. Uh, nope. Taking that back. Starting over. Here we go. <laughs> so this episode was written by Art Wallace. Big difference. Uh, he, uh, uh, like someone else a few episodes ago, wrote uh, for Gene Roddenberry's The Lieutenant. He also wrote for Shatner's For the People. And Gene Roddenberry really wanted to do a Moby Dick episode, as if we didn't already have one in the pipeline. So uh, this episode was originally slated to be written for season one. Uh, but even before the premiere, John D. Black and Robert Justman both agreed that they should hold off on writing it. Justman also thought the material was a little bit too similar to Ray Bradbury's Moby Dick 1999. Even stranger was the fact that Ray Bradbury had submitted to Star Trek a reworking of the story. Uh, but things just didn't work out. And before too long, the BBC had reworked Brad ugh, had reworked Bradbury's story into a epic 90 minute movie. So uh, they couldn't use Ray Bradbury's version anymore, and they had to come up with their own. So when the second season rolled around, uh, Roddenberry couldn't let go of the idea. Still with Wallace's treatment, he pulled the trigger and commissioned for the script. The initial draft, as always, was uh, needed so much more work. Roddenberry uh, asked for Kirk's motivation to be better refined. Perhaps his captain died, or maybe a fiancé, suggests Roddenberry. Uh, maybe one of the men killed this time was the son of that same captain. So we see where those uh, story points came from. DC Fontana wrote saying that the thing needed more motivation. She says in her, uh, she says to quote her, Justman made a point on another story since corrected that if we must have things and monsters, they must have some kind of intelligence, meaning and purpose. They too should have character. So I thought that this was kind of interesting. Um, and something that's made actually a point of in this in this episode. You need a villain who has reason and purpose. 
you know, we'd look at a lot of those, like a lot of the superhero movies and the ones that work are the ones, you yep. know, who have a clear cut villain. And we could also look at that in the uh, James Bond series as well. I, I also think, and I've talked about this before, that the, one of the problems with the movies, the Star Trek movies in general. Um, yes. Starting with Wrath of Khan. <laughs> well, Wrath of Khan has a good villain. Uh-huh. They, or, they already established his purposes and his motivations in in the original television episode. Yeah. And it's kind of obvious when you show up at SETI Alpha 5 and you're like, oh, <laughs> this was a nice planet when we dropped you off. I totally get why you're ticked. Right? right. So that doesn't, that doesn't require some kind of, I don't understand. What's his motivation? His motivation writes itself. But yeah. after that, their villains tended to be a little too one note, a little too, we're just going to take for granted that he's a villain. And I think that was a problem. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I thought you were going to go with that, and the reason I brought up Star Trek 2 is because you, you tended to think that the movies were a little too villain-based. Right. And I think had they followed this particular piece of advice, they would have been much better off. Right. And, you know, you've only got two hours to tell a story, and a villain creates a, an awful lot of dramatic tension. I totally get the appeal of why you want a villain. Yeah. And we yeah. saw what happened in the motion picture, so sometimes a thing isn't good enough. Well, I, I of course, like the motion picture, so mm-hmm. um, I think it's, it's very Star Trek-y. Right. But I also think that you know, if you look at, for example, superhero movies, right? And, of yeah. course, with the, uh, you know, the Avengers final, final movie out yep. and people discussing what worked and what didn't work, not only in the Marvel universe, but by comparison to the DC universe, which I think has had more struggles, at least getting some popular. And it's what we've said about every Star Trek episode. The best episodes are Star Trek... And it's a police procedural. It's Star Trek and, you know, it's a Western, right? Yeah. And so you look at why did Superman work so well? The original, uh, you know, Christopher Christopher Reeves. It was a romantic comedy in which (laughs) he happened to be Superman, right? And you've got Lois Lane. But that's a romantic comedy. I mean, if you look at the structure of the story, that's totally what it is. And that's why it works. Because the bones of it don't rely on believing he's he got this. Because that's what people say about Superman. Well, he's too powerful. He does, you know, nothing stops him. How do you create drama with Superman? And you don't. What you do is you write another kind of movie in which Superman is right. is the dude. And, you know, one of the things that was true about lots of the Marvel is they're written like funny comedy movies, right? Yeah. It's a buddy movie. Or it's, uh, you know, you, so you look at the structure of the story and you're like, well, how are we going to do this if they weren't superhero movies? Let's make them cops or janitors or mall cops <laughs> or whatever. And yeah. you can totally write a good, a good, funny story. It's just that this one happens to involve Thor and Loki, right? right? And so when we look at Star Trek, I think we, we see that over and over again, the successful episodes do things like treat their villains with respect, you know, give them serious motivations, make them real. They combine 
an episode of Star Trek with a story structure that's something else. And this is a fantastic formula. It works over and over again. Well, Robert Justman said that he hated it. He writes, Dear Gene, sorry to disagree with you. He goes on to say that uh, Spock is non-existent in this version of the script, uh, as is Bones, and the logic gaffes follow. I predict the odds are a thousand to one in our being able to get a decent rewrite out of Art Wallace and his scripts. The odds are 50-50 if Gene Kuhn writes it. So, uh, DC and RJ uh, keep comparing this episode to the man trap, except that it's not salt, uh, that it's salt, not blood that they're attracted to. So John Lucas, who we ta- uh, John Meredith Lucas, who we talked about a few episodes back, comes on during the writing of this episode. Kuhn hands him uh, all the stories in progress, the 13 stories that he has, and uh, he decides to do uh, this one because it's the closest to uh, production ready. The next one, of course, will be the games of uh, Triskelion, which is next week's episode, so that works out perfectly. Uh, he writes of this episode, if there was one element that... Uh, Oh, he says not only of this episode, but in, in, in general of his uh, time on Star Trek, he says that the one element I wanted to bring back because I felt that it had gotten a little lost was Gene Roddenberry's inspiration for the series of Horatio Hornblower. So Sounds we get good. the uh, yeah, so we get the uh, the next draft done. Uh, the DeForest Institute has some interesting thoughts on this episode. The biggest one, and I thought this was good, is that shockwaves need a, me- a medium in which to travel through, meaning that shockwaves do not travel in a vacuum. So uh, that puts like every sci-fi series, every sci-fi movie, <laughs> and, and at the a point you know so you got six. like the end of the Death Star when the Death Star blows up, and and, and the opening of Star Trek Six. Oh, very good. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty funny. Turn us into it! Turn us into it! <laughs> and the rattling of a teacup. It's beautiful cinematography, right? I mean, you love watching it. Sorry, I lost you in all of that. <laughs> I have oh, this where? thing up here that says, poor connection. I missed the whole thing. Okay, so... Uh, it's the beginning of Star Trek Six, right? So you right. start with that teacup rattling... And then, you know, the, the uh, he's coming from the direction of Praxis. Uh, you know, sensors, I can locate the position of Praxis, but not the existence of Praxis. On screens, turn us into it. It's, it's fantastic cinema, right? Right. But, yes. yeah, in case there's no shockwaves in space. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, well. Yeah, uh, and they got that note in the 60s, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you just got to throw caution to the wind and just be like, yes, but what works dramatically? Yeah. Of the Starship Farragut, they wrote this, that nomenclature for starships have hitherto indicated qualities with the names of historical personages for shuttlecraft. We suggest the Starship Endeavor. There we go. So really all of canon is... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I wrote this note to myself to remind me to say this. So really, everything that is canon in Star Trek is all De- the DeForest Institute's fault. Because they're the ones who have been like, well, so far we've been doing uh, starships, have been named with qualities, uh, the Farragut doesn't really work. 
Obviously, yeah, they didn't. So, that. They remained at the Farragut, but yes, yeah, so you you have this problem in which like who's your who's your continuity department, right? right. Mm-hmm. And then they don't have one except the, the DeForest Kelly Institute. I guess that, that's funny. <laughs> the, DeForest, the DeForest Institute. <laughs> nice. I've many times written DeForest Kelly, so I totally fine. <laughs> he was a mastermind of <laughs> keeping anything. Keeping. Yeah. So you get you know this this idea that uh, you know somebody's keeping watch, and they're like, you know, I just noticed that in the past. We did it this way, and how come you're doing it this other way? Oh, by the way, shockwaves don't work in space. Yes. So uh, Gene Roddenberry then decides that he wants Jill Barrett to be on the show and uh, pays himself $2,500 to do a rewrite and add scenes for her, so she's on the show as well. <laughs> then uh, John Meredith Lucas comes back, does some punching up of these pages, but the clock is ticking, and the next thing you know, they're in production. We got Ralph Sineski back. His, uh, he becomes the third rotating director of the show. John Aries, who plays uh, Rizzo, who the guy who dies in the uh, first part, also died in Arena. He died at the beginning when uh, everybody's uh, ears blew up. Eddie Paskey, as Lieutenant Leslie, also dies in this episode. But... With his 45th appearance, he still has 15 more to go as Lieutenant Leslie. <laughs> so much for canon. Well, you know, it's one of those things where, like, they kill him off, right? And then they turn around and go, wait a minute. This guy's, like, going to be on, because he's Kirk's, you know, stunt double. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's going to be on set all the time. We can't just, like, stop using him. Yeah. Oh, well, just, you know, it's episodic TV. Nobody remembers. Nobody's paying attention. Sineski also has some very nice words for the now-departed Gene Kuhn. He says that he feels that there was a drop in the quality of scripts post-Kuhn. I ascribe the reason for this drop to be partly because of the lack of Gene Kuhn's stewardship and the final rewriting of the scripts. He would say that he would his hand was on every script that came through the pipeline. So a question, of course, how different this episode is from the Admiral Decker one. Right. It's pretty similar. I think that part of the difference, part of the big difference between this one and and the Admiral Decker one is that uh, we're a lot more planet-bound on this one. You know, it starts on the planet, it keeps happening on the planet, and then eventually they get into space, but then what happens? We go back down to the planet. So at least there's a little bit, like, difference in the storytelling, plus we've got it, it's about one of our main characters as opposed to some guy who's coming in and being crazy. And then we have the added layer in this episode of having Garovic's son also on board. It's also kind of amazing the amount of handheld that we see in this episode. That's, uh, that's also kind of amazing. And uh, with that, a little bit of info. Let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So this episode starts with Kirk and Spock looking for uh, pure, not titanium. No, it's, oh, no, I'm not even going to say it right. Titanium? Well, whatever this is, is 20 times harder than diamonds, Ken. 20 times harder. (laughs) Our our much-discussed overcompensation that this show does. Diamonds are so hard, but 
this is 20 times harder. Actually, it's 21.4 times harder, according to Spock. <laughs> Thank you, Spock. Uh, Leslie is on the planet, as we've said, and he dies. Uh, Kirk smells something. But before he does, Kirk smells something. Hmm, what is that? It's a smell. It's a smell. It reminds me of something. What is that smell? And it's amazing to me because smells, that's one of the big things that'll take me back into like the little, my little memory banks of remembering something here and there. But the other thing that does it too, which is even stronger for me, is music. <laughs> if I hear a song that I, you know, listened to maybe four times or five times when I was 10 years old, wherever I heard it, boom, I'm back there, you know? And that happens a lot to like uh, the pool just because they had the radio blowing at the pool all the time. Yeah. So it's like, man, there are songs from like the 19, you know, 1980s that are just like, well, they'll take me right back to that old Saybrook pool, you know? Yeah. And music has an amazing way to, to set us in, in place and context, especially if we don't disturb that by, like, for example, for me, listening to Paul McCartney mm-hmm. does not set me at any time and place. Yes. Because you've listened to it so much over the years. Right. Which is different for me. If I listen to Band on the Run, it takes me back to a very certain place <laughs> in our lifetime. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Which would be the dining room in Naperville. So I'll say this too for the 1960s, that the effects work pretty well in this episode. You know, the smoke effects that they use of like blowing it out in just like the perfect, you know, way. And then uh, then reversing it when it, you know, when it's time to go away. I was like, I mean, how else are you going to do it back then? But that, I mean, I think that that pretty works. That works pretty well. So, uh, like I said, they are that whole group of people. They all die right off the bat. Except for Rizzo, who manages to make it back uh, into one of the sick bay beds. This episode, by the way, ties the record for the highest redshirt casualties with four for, with four confirmed dead in red. The Changeling and the Apple are the other two with four redshirts dead. As uh, as I mentioned before, it's it's season two where the redshirts are really taking it on the chin. Yep, absolutely. And it's these kinds of episodes that really really get the count going. So I know I was just praising the special effects, but the other question I have is when the smoke is actually killing all of the good guys, I don't know why there are sparkles in the smoke. I just uh, I don't know if they're trying to touch up what the smoke looks like or what's going on there, but I was like, ooh, look at all those sparkles. It's sparkly. It's a sparkly cloud. Why would anybody yeah. want to kill a sparkly cloud? <laughs> Sometimes I think they do that because like they've got it, but you yeah. do. So they're like, uh, why, don't we, why don't we try some of those sparkles? And, of course, when a special effect is no, new, you don't know how to use it, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, you know, yep. It, it's got to be some time where, you know, you've, you've used it a couple times, and someone's like, oh, my God, that, that sparkles. They work so great in that context. Yeah. And, and no one ever thinks to use them again. And when you say, hey, let's put sparkles on vampires, people are like, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> We've gone too far with the sparkles. <laughs> So it's interesting because this whole episode, like what happens in this first scene and then what happens later with Gerovic, it's just Kirk mad at himself that he didn't fire into the cloud, right? Right, right. He hesitated. My question is, is who would think that firing a phaser into a cloud was going to work anyway? You know, it's like, I know he feels it has some intelligence, but... 
that's the kind of mistake that you feel like you could totally make that mistake if you hadn't been through season one and two. Yeah. Right. Where so many of the times, you know, you're dealing with these, you know, crazy kind of incorporeal, non, you know, stuff you can't shoot at. Right. I know it's crazy. But by the time we get to where we're at, although I think that one of the effects that the cloud has is the cloud makes you doubt yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right? good. Yeah. So we, we see, you know, there's that whole scene at the end where he's talking to the, the young guy who, who didn't shoot again, right, who hesitated. Garavik, yeah. Young yeah. guy. And, uh, you know, he's kind of like, there's, there's nothing you could have done. I mean, you hesitated for a normal amount of time, and you know, there's no reason to beat yourself up because... I think what, it, what he's doing is he's counteracting the effect of the of the creature. Yeah. Because everybody who has that same you know, situation has the same response. Yeah. And it's not just because people die. I think it, it, it goes beyond that. It's like the creature's involved in making you feel bad about themselves. <laughs> yes. That's very possible. That's a good idea. I like that. Uh, anyway, all these guys are dead, and they're all pale, as if all of their corpuscles had been eaten. Credits. <laughs> Back at it. So uh, right away, our ticking clock is beating us over the head. we got to get supplies to a ship so that they can uh, create a vaccine. Now, what's interesting is, is that not only is this ticking, ticking clock used, as it normally is, as the ticking clock of like, hey, we got to do this, we got to get this done now, da 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 but it also helps show Kirk out of sink or not doing you know the right things because there's so many right. times when ohura is like hey i just heard from starfleet they're wondering where we are I just heard from the fair again and he like basically ignores her or tells right. her to go do something else you know go inventory the ham sandwiches <laughs> yes exactly what? i heard they're good tonight <laughs> those are in a replicator <laughs> they still must be counted lieutenant <laughs> So uh, Kirk uh, uh, demands that uh, McCoy bring Rizzo around. McCoy excuse me. McCoy says in his present condition, it won't make much difference. <laughs> I was like, um, wouldn't like him being in a coma be better than you know reviving him at any chance? And not only that, to point out that it was they were using cordrazine. Right, which is the same chemical stimulant that McCoy injects himself into in the city on the edge forever, which makes him temporarily lose his mind. So basically, nothing this guy is going to say is going to is going to make any sense, because as as McCoy even then says, he you know he thinks he's in like a dreamlike state, right? You know, he's like you're in, you're out, you don't know whether or not you're conscious or not. It's crazy. But Rizzo says that he felt the intelligence that Kirk was looking for. And then he passes out again. And then we hear uh, Chapel give us the, what's wrong with the captain? I've never seen him like that before. Just really setting up this whole idea of like, Kirk's up to no good. Plus the music, you know, the undertone of all the music is, you know, dun, dun, dun. And then we get our first example of Uhura trying to tell Kirk about a message from Starfleet, but he, he blows her off and gives her an order to go do something else. He then goes to Spock and tells him to scan for it. it Have knows. turkey sandwiches. It knows we're looking for it, says Kirk. 
So uh, Spock comes up with this idea that has never occurred to Kirk before. Maybe it can camouflage itself. And if it has intelligence, maybe then. He then sends Spock down to meet with McCoy. Uh, because earlier, I forgot, McCoy had, uh, he had told McCoy that something had happened on the Farragut that was very similar to the same situation. And that, hey, he should go look into those. Then Ensign Garavik arrives on the, uh, on the bridge. Kirk asks, are you indeed the son of... Uh, yes, sir, uh, but I expect no special treatment, says Garovic. Well, you'll get none on this ship, mister. <laughs> but that's actually wrong, because he does. He totally does. Kirk's like, well, I don't want to kill this one like I killed the other one. Let's uh, let's go have you hide in the uh, in your quarters until all of this blows over. I was also wondering, too, if this had been a non-episodic series, right? If, like, Garovic would become a recurring character... Someone that, you know, Kirk could then mentor. Right, yeah. You know, I could just totally see Lada on like a next generation. Ash Tyler. Which is, you know, then it would come up, we'd have some really cool, compelling stories. Too. There's also another funny thing I noticed in this, uh, in this little back and forth here between podcast that uh, Shatner didn't like to be shot near where people who were taller than he was. Right. At the over-the-shoulder of Garrick's, or Garavik's, uh, Kirk definitely looks shorter. But if you look at the over-the-shoulder on Kirk's side, uh, he definitely Kirk definitely looks taller. So I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it's one of those problems of this is the this is how over-the-shoulder shots work. So they hit the planet, and uh, Garavik takes the team one way. Kirk takes another one. They split up. That's always a bad idea. Garovic and his troops are attacked. But, as I've previously mentioned, Garovic doesn't fire. Uh, and he gets away unscathed. Kirk and the crew catch up. But it's too late. Two men are pale and dead. Dun-dun-dun commercial. Back at it! Why am I keeping the ship here? Kirk wonders in a uh, log. Garovic is then debriefed. And sent to remain in his quarters, as I've mentioned. Spock and Bones start to question Kirk here, but uh, he dismisses himself and walks out before they have a chance. Kirk then heads to the bridge and accuses Scott and the command crew of conspiring against him. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said conspiring. Ah, uh, that you shouldn't have, sir. Uh, then he yells at Chekhov, scan 20 times if that's what it takes, and he leaves. Uh, Spock then... Go, Spock then goes to Bones for advice about Kirk and his obsession. This is like a totally expositional scene, right? So not only is he setting up like, hey, A, Kirk's out of his gourd. B, we uh, learned about uh, old Garavik, the captain, and uh, what happened to poor young Lieutenant Kirk and his first deep space exposition. In Kirk's quarters, Bones enters to have a heart-to-heart with Kirk. We find Kirk blames himself for the death of 200 people, including Garovic, my only commanding officer since Starfleet Academy. I think it was his first commanding officer. Because he's, he's got well, apparently some long period of time on the Republic. Yes. Well, he says no, because I wrote it word for word. He says that he was his only commanding officers since the academy up to that point yeah oh okay gotcha 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 okay up to that point 
McCoy then calls Kirk obsessed. Obsessed? It's really funny. Shatner fires that word back at him like it was like Bones had insulted his mother or something, you know. Don't push our friendship to the point where I might have to take physical. Whoa, whoa, what are you going to say there, Kirk? You're going to take on poor old Bones there? What's going on? We talked recently about uh, rolling up Bones as a character, and that guy does not have a lot of fighting or strength on him, you know? No, he does not. And it would just look awful. You come in and, like, Kirk, you know, in his 30s, is, like, beating up on Bones. He's just like, you know, <laughs> that would just look awful. So I mean, you, you know right away something is wrong with the captain. <laughs> Absolutely. McCoy then uh, comes back and he says, I am putting together a report which requires a witness of command grade. And in walks Spock, who somehow has been listening through the wall. <laughs> or was directed to go in by the script. <laughs> <laughs> or that. Uh, and I love that Spock here goes by the book, right? You know, where he's like, uh, Kirk, you know, Kirk throws the book definition to him and he throws back the uh, legally required response by the book. Yeah. Makes me think of Savick by the book, you know, by the book, Mr. Savick. And then Kirk's like, okay, forget the manual, ask your questions. So uh, there's a little back and forth here, which is really fun. And then it, uh, it ends with Spock, you know, throwing a bunch of ifs. If it is intelligent, if it is this, if it is that, if this is all true, then it could, it could pose a great threat to inhabited planets. Kirk's like, a lot of ifs, I agree. But it's my command judgment. They outweigh all of the facts. Intuition, however illogical, Mr. Spock, is recognized as command prerogative. So by the end of the scene, Kirk has sort of belayed their decision. Bones is like, uh, all right, all right, I'll keep, my, uh, I'll keep my thing open here, my folder open, for now. And then we find out that the creature has left the planet, and Kirk orders them to pursue. Commercial. Warp 8, as they're zooming after the creature. So, um, it's funny because I got to watch this episode both remastered and non-remastered. Uh-huh. And uh, there was something about, in the remastered version, obviously they don't, they don't use the star lines like they use in um, Next Generation, right? But there was something about the way they did the stars in that opening scene right there that really felt like they were zooming. They were like really flying towards the creature. It was pretty cool. Scotty is constantly worried about the engines. It's like, we can't go much faster. It's not going to work. Kirk's like, I just want you to find a way to increase speed. (laughs) The remastered cloud here looks so much better than the original. It actually looks like a bunch of puffs of smoke as opposed to a, uh, the same sparkly filled sheet of white that we saw in the, uh, on the planet. Scott then says, we're going to blow up captain. If we keep up the speed, Kirk's like, fine, fine. Warp six. Garavik now down in his room, sulking. He has nothing else to do. And he gets this visit from Chapel. And then Chapel tricks him into eating, right? By bringing up a false card that supposedly has one, one, uh, not command, uh, one. Was that like, like McCoy had ordered him to eat? Prescription. That was the word I was looking for. One prescription, eat. And we remember that this links back to what Gene Roddenberry thinks the command style should be, is that you have to trick all of your officers into doing things. So that just fits, especially knowing he wrote it. So uh, the creature then slows down. Garavik opens his plate 
and it's like this giant blade of Fruit Loops or something. I don't know. And, it, and he gets mad, and he throws the lid across the room, hitting the ventilation system. Those oh are boy! Star Loops. Yeah, Star Loops. I hope this uh, opening up the ventilation system doesn't cause problems later. Which is funny though. When I first watched it, I thought he had like turned the communicator system on or something, right? Because the red alert announcement is the next next thing that we hear. I was confused. Anyway, Gervik ignores a direct command order and rushes to the bridge. They slowly approach the cloud, and Kirk is barking out orders. Gervik now thinks that this might be the perfect time to ask to be reinstated. <laughs> it's a poor choice. Kirk fires the phasers. Nothing happens. Torpedoes. Nothing happens. The creature now enters through the number two impulse vent that Scotty was fixing earlier. Now it's in the ventilation system. Oh, my goodness. McCoy accuses Kirk of looking for the trophy. But Spock steps in and says, let us not belabor the question of whether or not we should have gone after the creature. The matter has been rendered academic. The creature is after us now. Creature, Mr. Spock, says Bones. He did turn and attack. So now we know it's intelligent. Dun, dun, dun. So... Of all of the really questionable things that we have uh, heard about on this show, I have to question the uh, idea to flush radioactive waste into the ventilation systems. Yes. This cannot be a good idea. I feel like this is a class action suit waiting to happen, you know? <laughs> I can see the lawyer commercials now. Hi, were you part of the USS Enterprise crew when the Captain Kirk decided to flush radioactive waste into the ventilation systems? We are part of a class acting suit that is now looking for you to get paid. And since the Federation has no money, you get your own ship. Would you like your own ship? Call us then at 1-888-KIRKSBAD and we'll get you that ship. <laughs> anyway, sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> Spock here also points out that Kirk's self-recrimination is baseless, as the phasers did no damage to the creature. But Kirk won't have it. He seems to have lived with it for far too long. Oh, Spock, the alien, it's the it's the alien influence. Oh yeah, there you go. Spock then goes to visit Garovic, explaining that humans always hesitate. It's been in their genes since before man. But before the con conversation can really start getting interesting, the creature makes his way through the open vent. Spock throws Garovic out the door and attempts to close the gate as we go to commercial. I don't know about him putting his hands in front of the vent, though. That didn't seem like a good idea either. Back at it, Garovic calls the bridge and Kirk rushes down. But not before telling Scotty to reverse cabin pressure in cabin 341. Which Scotty does by pushing a single button. <laughs> How does this one button work for, like, every cabin? Just, how did they know that was the one for 345? Does every cabin have their own button? I don't know what's happening here. Maybe we missed the scene where he's like, uh, just in case the creature goes after Garavik. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah, I want you to prepare a single button <laughs> to reverse cabin pressure. But we don't need to discuss this on camera. Right. the audience doesn't need to know. But again, even if you just would have said reverse the reverse the 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 pressure in the vent or something, you know, and then you yeah. do one, and that makes way more sense as opposed to like that specific cabin. I work with a guy who's got the typing that goes you know, H E L L O, and 
you know, my fear is that if you ask actors, you know, to type like that in 1960, because you know, that was not a, that's what you would have gotten, right? Sure, probably so, right about that. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't just go like you could today, where everyone's got a keyboard and everyone's, you know, uh, or even better, you know, depending on how old your actor is, uh, you use your thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's reasonable to think today you could ask an actor to, like, just you know, hit four buttons in quick sequence, and they'd be like, tap, 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 all right, it's good. And we'd be, like, very convincing. <laughs> you have used a keyboard before. <laughs> That's right. You are probably a technically proficient person. So uh, McCoy arrives with security. Now, I don't know, did you notice the weird phaser that the kid is holding in that? It like it looks like the opening is covered with a lid. I don't know. It's very weird. <laughs> and we already know the phasers don't work anyway. So is this some sort of vacuum cleaner? I mean, are we just gonna pull the creature right out of the room? I don't know what this plan was, but anyway, Kirk arrives before they go in and tells them like, "Hey, uh, don't don't go in there." Garovic then apologizes to him, saying that it should be him dead on the floor, just as Spock walks out, saying, "Well, fortunately, the reverse has happened." This is also the second time that Spock has heard through walls. We find out that the copper blood is what ran it off. Must have given him quite a bad taste in his mouth, says McCoy. It's just like uh, his different oceans and his different salts in the Salt Monster episode. Right. Scotty calls down to tell us that the, the creature is leaving. He's heading out of the vent this time. Then... Kirk has a moment here with Garovic telling him, uh, what did you see earlier? The phasers didn't work, so you firing any, any sooner would have made no difference. Kirk then puts him back on, back on duty and then heads up to follow, uh, to chase the creature. He tells Scott to give me all I got until she starts to shake apart. Shake her apart then. That's right. Kirk mentions here, and mentions again outside of Garovic's cabin that he sensed something was different in the creature. It's weird. It's weird that it's so tossed off like that. So much like your idea that maybe the creature was, you know, putting the doubt into both Garovic and to Kirk's. There's also something interesting here because Kirk smells something different and he knows that it was saying home. Right. That's basically what he says. So what would have been interesting to spend a, cause so the, in the writing of the script, they talk about how there's a lot of like double scenes that cover the same amount of knowledge or same stuff that we already know about in the show scenes that are very similar, you know, like Spock telling Kirk, like, Hey, the phasers made no difference. And then, you know, Kirk telling Garovic, well, see, it would have made no difference. You know, there's a lot of repeating in that. So it would have been interesting if maybe we would have discovered that the creature has left something in Kirk. You know, right. that's why he knew when it smells that he knew that it meant home. And so it's funny because, so we go to commercial, and when we come back, Spock then's like, uh, well, we think it's going to breed. I was like, how did we find out this information? Here's another thing that just was, we found out during commercial and was never explained to us how it happened. So again, it just would have been interesting if they would have filled in the script with some more of this kind of stuff as opposed to some of the repeating scenes that we had in this in this episode. Yeah, and when, when you get that, you know, there's that uh, there's a scene in uh, in Hamlet, right, where like some guy just shows up and gives a bunch of exposition, uh -huh. 
And then like, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> plays long enough. We don't need uh, to find out about this. Yeah. And and that's you know what some of this feels like, right? Mm-hmm. Is that there's just Spock just says he's it's going to make now. Okay. Well, one of uh, Sineski, the director, one of his other complaints about post-Coon Trek is that he feels that uh, they do a lot more of explaining stuff as, as opposed to dramatic, dramatizing it. Right, right. You know what I mean? That we're, we're told too much exposition as opposed to just showing us what the expedition thing was. So we'll see as we go on to see if that's true. Anyway, so we're going to Tycho 4, which is the home of the well, creature, apparently. So, oh, go ahead. so just, just imagine, like, so Spock is looking into his little blue visory thing, right? Right. And says, I detect another one of those creatures. And they're like, you know, oh no, like, you know, more power to shields, or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, wait, it appears, you know, you know, perhaps they could be uh, preparing to mate. Yes. And you go, oh, okay. And that would, that would take so little time, right? Yeah. It's not like, well... Either Spock gives us this exposition or we 15 minutes showing you that the panel box is in Jeffrey Tube number 17. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, all he has to do is, is look at the sensors, tell us what he sees, as opposed to just giving us that kind of, uh, I'm just going to give you some facts. Yeah. Uh, it's not clear where they come from. They were here in the script. Spock thinks it's going home to spawn, as we mentioned, via fission, apparently. There could be many more of these creatures to exist. Uh, a matter, antimatter explosion is the only way, and Kirk decides he's going to, uh, you know, go down there and possibly sacrifice himself. And he brings Gerovic along, because why not? I mean, you've been trying to keep him safe this whole episode, so let's just go ahead and bring him down at the most daring moment of the show. Good idea. Tension mounts as we see the creature. It attacks the hemoglobin that they brought down as bait, drinking it all in less than a second. It is then here that Kirk sends Gerovic back to the ship, but because of his need to kill the creature, Gerovic instead attacks Kirk, and Kirk fights back! It is then here that Kirk reveals, I wasn't actually going to sacrifice myself. I would just keep buying us enough time until it got close, because it's going to be close. The creature comes towards the bomb, and then it explodes. But... As they beam out. Oh no, but they're having trouble beaming them back aboard. And Spock says, well, let's reset. I'm like, how are you going to reset? They're where they just were, like, blew up. You can't reset. (laughs) Anyway, Spock moves them to B, whatever that means, and they are saved after a far too long beaming sequence. Were we really really worried at that point that they weren't going to make it? Right, yeah. Uh, then they head to the rendezvous and we close on a happy ending of Kirk telling Garovic he'll tell him stories about his father. That's that. A couple more notes here. Despite all of its obstacles, Obsession was obsessively finished on schedule within a and within budget. The total cost of the episode was $170,000, $871. Uh-huh. And uh, this equates to about $1.2 million in 2013. So that basically sounds like a Discovery episode. Is what, we're, yep. is what we're looking at. And uh, it was in second place all night. 28% of the share of people watching from 9 to 9.30 and 29% of the share from 9.30 to 10 o'clock. Wow. 
Gomer Pyle, of course, still winning the nine o'clock hour with its 37% of the share. Wow. Well, golly. That's right. Well, that's it. That's all I've got on this episode. Like I said, next week is the, uh, the, the... I said it already. You already know. The <laughs> gamers. The, I'm going to say the gamers of Trixalin, but I know that's <laughs> Gangsters? Is that what it is? Whatever. Perhaps. That's next week. It'll be fine. And it, Perhaps and, we should put down a wager of 20,000 quatloos. <laughs> all right. So look forward to that next week, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, anything else about this episode we didn't hit, or did we touch on everything? Uh, I, I think we pretty much got it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, for the most part, I think it's a well-directed episode. I think all of the acting is pretty fine in this episode. They're just, you know, a couple of the, to use a Robert Justman word, logic uh, logic gaffes that don't work. But well, other than that, think I think it's fine. It's, it's difficult to make these episodes in a week, which is what they're doing. Right? Yes. So, you know, by the time we get to that other uh, million-dollar show, the the Discovery, right? Right. They're clearly spending a lot more time. You know, they're not like writing it in in between filming, right? It's not yeah. like, oh, well, we're down here filming episode twelve, and those guys are in that room over there writing episode thirteen. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because that that's how you end up with these kind of logic problems, where you know, if only you'd thought about it a little bit longer. Yeah. So yay, All right. Yay, yay for modern television. Yes, thank gosh, for sure. Well, that'll wrap up this episode. What a quick and fast episode it was. My name is Matt, coming to you from Austin. And as, and as always, from Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. Here we go, and we will see everybody next week. Bam, 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 bam,